This is an ABC podcast. One way to think about civilization is as a very large machine. With billions of components, from toasters to oil tankers to social media, all connected by the way they serve humankind. For the last several hundred years, that machine has been driven by fossil fuels. Even the components, not directly powered by coal or oil, were manufactured using them. But as we all know, the push for alternatives is slowly gaining pace. There's solar and there's wind, but what about hydrogen? It certainly seems to be the energy source of the moment. Probably five years ago, no one was talking about hydrogen. And now in the last 12 months to two years, I think it started to become a lot more popular to talk about hydrogen and also a lot more common to hear about hydrogen projects being funded. So I think even in the last five years, there's been an increase and probably in the last two years in particular has been some acceleration in hydrogen. I see this as a good news story. I see this as an indication that we've kind of solved the decarbonisation of electrical power. Understanding hydrogen's role in our future. That's our programme today. Hello, Anthony Fennell here. Welcome to Future Tense. So what's driving this sudden interest? Dr Jessica Allen, a senior lecturer in chemical and renewable energy engineering at the University of Newcastle. It's a combination of factors, I believe. So there's a few countries that are aggressively pursuing hydrogen and have been for some time, but they've been in the last couple of years in particular pushing for hydrogen energy, and that is South Korea and Japan. So they are majorly invested in increasing uptake of hydrogen energy technology. So that's one part of it. But it's also the fact now that renewables in terms of solar photovoltaics and wind energy are now so cheap that it's possible to get very cheap electricity. And then if we can make hydrogen with that electricity, it's a cheap way to get a new fuel that has a lot of different applications. So I think it's a combination of the world being ready to decarbonise. Some countries are pushing for the uptake of this new technology and also the cost coming down for renewables in general. Now, just to complicate things, there's hydrogen and there's hydrogen. The gas isn't in and of itself clean. What's called grey hydrogen is made in a process using fossil fuels, so it has no clean energy credentials at all. Blue hydrogen is created the same way, but the carbon dioxide created during that process is captured and stored. So it's not completely clean, but far better for the environment than burning coal. The third type of hydrogen is the most prized. It's known as green hydrogen, and it's made using a renewable energy source. That's the one most people get excited about when they talk about hydrogen's future potential. So how much green hydrogen is being produced around the world today? Where does it fit as a percentage of overall production? Zero. (laughs) So at the moment, the vast, vast majority. There might be small scale sort of pilot projects and demonstration scale green hydrogen projects right now at this moment in operation, but there's no large scale commercial green hydrogen production happening globally. So that's important, isn't it? Because that's not the way it's sometimes portrayed, particularly in the media. 
Well, it's important in the way that hydrogen is not inherently zero emission. So we talk about the fact that we're already making hydrogen. We use hydrogen in industry. It's an important gas, but in and of itself, it's not a zero emission fuel. If we use it from green hydrogen, so using water splitting and and renewable energy input, then yes, then we can have green hydrogen, but that's not the cheapest way to do it. And that's not the way it's done in industry. So at the moment, we have no green hydrogen capacity. But in 2020 alone, there were a total of 50 gigawatts of green hydrogen projects announced. And to put that into perspective, so the National Electricity Market of Australia is only 20 gigawatts. So more than double our grid has been announced in new green hydrogen projects just last year. So the rate of acceleration of green hydrogen projects is definitely stepping up and increasing. The interest level in hydrogen is soaring. It's certainly the most topical conversation in, in the renewable energy sector at the moment. And that's been driven by this huge demand growth that everybody's expecting. Some countries forecasting that their demand for hydrogen is going to increase tenfold over the coming years as well. Gero Ferrugio, the head of renewable research at the consultancy Rystad Energy. These hydrogen wars where we're talking about countries racing to supply the export of green hydrogen and how costs today aren't where they need to be. So to get to where they need to be, you know, governments will be having to provide the incentives and then the grants to actually develop these economies and really capture that market share. And so you've seen projects certainly in the Middle East and then large projects here in Australia. And we estimate that about 75% of the capital expenditure at the moment will need to be subsidised by these governments um, if they are to make these large hydrogen electrolyzer projects commercial. So it'll be a race to which government is going to dig deeper into its pockets to really kickstart the supply of green hydrogen in their countries. Certainly when you're looking at what Europe is doing, that goes into the tens, possibly the hundreds of billions of dollars of government funding that they're looking in, not just on the supply, but the development of the whole hydrogen economy. And I think this is certainly what's capturing all the corporate's interest is the level of government subsidies that are coming into this over the coming years. The costs of production of green hydrogen are quite high, aren't they? How quickly do you expect those costs to come down if this level of demand is as high as you say? I think that's a question that the industry is, is looking at because it isn't commercial at the moment. The production of green hydrogen at these levels is at the moment looking like it's a decade away. And although there's an incredible amount of interest globally in this and countries try and build a hydrogen economy, there are some sceptics who, who feel that there's a bit of a hydrogen bias going on. And it's all surrounding the costs and whether the costs will come down and the role of, of blue hydrogen as well, which is the production of hydrogen from gas, but capturing the carbon. So at the moment, certainly in the short term, the cost of this blue hydrogen is cheaper and the green hydrogen is about four times more expensive at the moment. And it's anywhere between the next five or 10 years where they feel the cost, the learning curve could come down to match that of blue hydrogen. Looking at China, given its enormous size, its enormous output, are they interested in hydrogen and in what ways? At the moment, the technology is being developed and owned by Europe, predominantly German companies, but then you have companies like Cockrell from Belgium as well. They really are the key suppliers of the hydrogen electrolyzer at the moment. But we see China certainly emerging on this and, and companies are beginning to adopt and looking into developing the electrolyzers. 
And if China grasps this sector like it did a decade ago with solar panels, it can really help traverse that learning curve and drive down the costs of the electrolyzers and really drive that green hydrogen cost down to something to make it competitive, not just with blue hydrogen, but uh, other energy forms. It's difficult at the moment because it's expensive. The renewables prices, so for solar PV and wind, they've come way down. And that's because they have massive commercial uptake. So they've come down over a period of sort of 10 to 15 years. Green hydrogen just hasn't had that same development. So there are no large-scale electrolysis plants in place at the moment. So it hasn't had that chance for the large-scale production of technology. So in order to grow that market, you need to have the upfront investment of the technology, this new technology, this new infrastructure, so that the cost can start to come down. But I have seen some analysis that say that the projects that have been announced for between now and 2030, if those projects actually happen, then the price for green hydrogen will drop substantially and it will drop to that magical number that is talked about of $2 per kilo of hydrogen. So if everything going well, if everything that we say that is going to happen and all these new projects that are being announced, if they actually happen, then the price for hydrogen will come down and it will come down by sort of 2030, maybe slightly later. That magical number, $2 per kilogram, that's the target that scientists involved in a new Australian hydrogen research initiative are keen to realise. The project, with $68 million Australian dollars in initial funding, is called the Hydrogen Industry Mission, and it was launched just a few weeks back by the CSIRO. It has various government and private sector partners. Linda Stalker, a senior principal research scientist. It's really trying to sort of catalyse and bring together the emerging hydrogen industry in Australia. There's a number of sort of pillars of activity, including sort of like really trying to build up foundational knowledge. There's a need for things like whole new standards for pipelines and infrastructure. So if we want to, say, add 10% hydrogen to your natural gas pipeline, what does that look like? What changes do you have to make? Because there's some wholesale infrastructure changes if we actually switch out, say, methane to having hydrogen coming into your home for cooking with instead of natural gas. And then there's a lot of work on fuel cell technology. How do you build a refueler that will actually service your car or the role of hydrogen in transport and trucks and buses? working collaboratively across a number of different projects to sort of do a lot of learning by doing and sort of then sort of like the feedback loop of like, what do you discover? How do you improve each of these steps going forward? So again, it's starting off with the case of hydrogen being expensive as we sort of start these different technologies to try and purify it, looking at, you know, the best ways to either work with electrolyzers to use for green hydrogen but also looking at, you know, things like the techno-economics of how do you do that transition from the blue to the green? Because one of the questions is how are we going to transport this hydrogen? You know, if, if we're going to send hydrogen to Japan instead of LNG, what do we need to change out? What can we use? How do you chill it? Do you transport it as ammonia? You know, all of these questions. So you've got all of these sort of different players all trying to come together. And instead of doing it all in isolation, you've got a bit more of an ecosystem to sort of like collaborate together. So green hydrogen, manufactured using renewable energy technology, 
is the ultimate goal for many scientists, environmentalists and research agencies. It has enormous potential. But its success is so speculative that many critics simply dismiss it. Which brings us back to the blue form. Blue hydrogen might not be fully clean, but some argue that it can still play a significant role in the transition away from fossil fuel dominance. Andy Brown, Engineering Director with Progressive Energy in the United Kingdom. The UK in 2019 put 354 million tonnes of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. 354 million tonnes. Now that's good because it's 41% less than we did in 1990. And we've achieved that by shutting down a lot of our coal-fired power stations. So that's good. But if we could reduce that 354 million tonnes right down, that would be absolutely wonderful. And our goal, as you're probably aware, in the UK is to be net zero by 2050. But there's quite a lot of work to do in the meantime. And certainly bringing hydrogen into the equation will be a big contributor towards this. To be honest, I think in order to restore some of the damage that the profligate use of fossil fuels has resulted, we're going to need to pull all the levers available to us. We're going to need green hydrogen. We're going to need blue hydrogen. We're going to need increased use of biomass. We're going to need reduced personal fuel consumptions. We're going to need all these things. We're going to need diet change. We're going to need lower populations. We're going to need everything. But if we're going to conserve this planet for our children and our children's children and their children, then we've got to bite the bullet and start making some changes. And we need to stop talking about it and actually doing it. I just see this happening across the world, that people are starting to wake up to the damage that fossil fuels are doing and finding ways to introduce hydrogen into the economy. We know what we need to do to decarbonise electricity and all the applications that use electricity. Fiona Beck, a senior research fellow at the Australian National University and the convener of their hydrogen project. I think if I was being cynical, I would also say there's another side to it in that I would say that the fossil fuel companies also see that their lifetime is finite and that they can see the writing on the wall that we're not going to be able to keep burning fossil fuels at the rate we are. And making hydrogen is an attractive way for them to continue to use their fossil fuel sources in this transition phase, if you see it like that, between what we are now and where we get to zero emissions, whenever that is. So I see two things. One, that it's a real opportunity that because renewable energy is so cheap, we can start thinking about how to target other hard to decarbonize sectors of the economy. And there is the opportunity for fossil fuel companies to continue to extract and use fossil fuels in a cleaner way, albeit a not completely clean way. But here's the rub. Blue hydrogen as a transformative energy source only makes sense if the technology for extracting carbon dioxide from its production actually works. Once again, there are sceptics. The actual process of extraction, called CCS, short for Carbon Capture and Storage, has long been controversial. It involves scrubbing carbon from industrial emissions and then storing it under pressure underground. Many environmentalists claim it simply doesn't work. And if that's true, then blue hydrogen is just a myth. 
We heard from the CSIRO's Linda Stalker earlier. Well, she heads their National Geosequestration Laboratory. Here's what she thinks. So we want to make a genuine material difference to reducing the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere. There are a number of different ways of doing it. One of them is carbon capture and storage. And it's the only one of those sorts of dealing with CO2 directly that's quantifiable significance and will actually deal with this at scale. You say that it's quite effective technology, but I know that you've also reported that it's not readily being adopted. Why is that? If you'd asked me that question six months ago, I would have agreed with you. (laughs) With the upcoming COP26 and the increased announcements on global decarbonisation targets, CCS has been seen as an option to make at scale difference in reducing CO2 emissions and decarbonising a whole heap of industries. So there's a real transition to seeing this technology being deployed more broadly, globally. How expensive is it to operate carbon capture and storage technology? So the costs are coming down rapidly. And they're coming down rapidly because more and more projects are occurring. There is a really vibrant community that is sharing that knowledge and transferring that knowledge. So there's a lot of cost saving. And the other thing that's been happening is uh, different organisations have been setting sort of stretch targets to try and work out what is the best cost, you know, like price per tonne CO2 abated. And really to get to that green hydrogen There's got to be a lot of steps to get it up to scale and to just go from a cold start with renewables and water is really going to be hard to get hydrogen into that space in the short term. And what we need to do is accelerate decarbonisation. So again, this is a, a transition through rather than necessarily being a long term enabler of ongoing fossil fuel use. You're with Future Tense on RN. ABC Radio National, exploring the world around us, looking for the pathways ahead and signposting the future. Let's now look at application. As the demand for both blue and green hydrogen rapidly increases, along with its production, where will it find its true place in the energy landscape? Fiona Beck again. The point about renewable hydrogen is that it is always competing with renewable energy. What I mean by that is to make renewable hydrogen, you use renewable electricity to run this water splitting reaction electrolysis, and then you get green hydrogen. But that is not a completely efficient process. At the moment, we're looking at about 60% efficiency. So if you can run an application directly on electricity, it is much more sensible in terms of energy efficiency to run it directly with renewable energy and to skip out the hydrogen altogether. So, for example, things like cars, passenger vehicles in Australia, it it would seem to be much more energy efficient to just use our wonderfully abundant renewable energy resources to get electricity to then power electric cars rather than worry about fuel cell electric vehicles which are hydrogen powered. The same could be said for basic home heating or cooking. 
you would much rather use the electricity directly rather than transfer it into hydrogen and then burn that hydrogen or run that hydrogen through a fuel cell. It's things that cannot be electrified that are the really interesting applications for hydrogen. So these include things like transport for heavy vehicles, things like trucks, trains and planes. These types of vehicles are less likely to be powered by batteries because of the power weight ratio involved in batteries. So what I mean by this is the more power you need, the heavier the battery it is you need, and then you need more power to actually transport that very heavy battery. So we're already seeing some heavy vehicles like mining trucks, trains in Germany being run on hydrogen. And these sorts of things would be less likely to be able to be directly electrified. Another important application is industrial applications. One of those is, is what we call high temperature heat. So electricity can obviously be used to heat things up, but if you're trying to get very, very high temperatures for use in industrial processes, most of that is done by burning things like coal and gas. And in the future, it might be easier and more efficient to replace that directly with burning hydrogen. Oh, well, this is quite an exciting use of hydrogen, but it's only just started. We were talking to a steelworks in the UK and said that we would like to put hydrogen into their steelmaking furnaces. And they looked at us aghast because they thought that it would uh, make them explode. Well, of course, it's not quite like that. We can do that in a controlled manner. And there's a, a steelworks in Sweden at a place called Luella, and they are piloting what they call direct reduction of iron in the blast furnace there, where they're using hydrogen instead of coke to make iron from which steel will eventually be made. So that's something which is being piloted, and we're looking at options for doing that in the United Kingdom as well. But it uses a lot of hydrogen. And what would the benefits be for the environment if hydrogen was to replace fossil fuels in steel production? Oh, the benefits would be enormous. There's a steelworks in South Wales that puts 6.1 million tonnes of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere every year. And it would mean that that would be drastically reduced down to almost nothing. It would be a great benefit. But I think the possible concern is that it would increase the cost of producing the steel because it's, it's a more expensive way of doing it than it is to use coke which is what they do at the moment. And is it more difficult to do it? Well, at the moment, they're piloting it in Sweden. And I think until that pilot scheme is up and running, we won't be able to answer that question. What other industries do you foresee a greater role for hydrogen in? Well, this is quite exciting. We're involved with a project in the northwest of England called Hydeploy. And we have already taken an ordinary industrial boiler and we've taken the burner from that and we've put 100% hydrogen into the burner instead of natural gas. And it burns the hydrogen just fine. And the boiler performance is almost unaffected by it. So any industry that uses boilers, just about any industry that uses boilers, can benefit being switched to hydrogen. The other place that we're looking at is in one of the UK's big plate glass manufacturing complexes at a place called St. Helens. And they have huge furnaces there. And we are, as we speak, putting pipes in there to convert part of the furnace there for hydrogen. 
So if we can get boilers converted to hydrogen and big industries like glass making converted to hydrogen, then that will start to make an impact on the CO2 footprint from big industries. Andy Brown, Engineering Director with Progressive Energy in the United Kingdom. There's one other important thing to talk about in the application spaces for hydrogen and ammonia, which is a derivative of hydrogen, and that is the trade and transport of energy. So right now, there is a hugely profitable and hugely important trade of energy internationally in the form of liquid natural gas and coal and other fossil fuel products. Now, it's very difficult to store electrons. They can be stored in things like a battery or a capacitor. But as we said, these are not necessarily very energy dense. They tend to be very big, very heavy, and it tends to be difficult to store energy for a long time. So if you want to move around large quantities of energy, it's really good to have a fuel. And that's where something like renewable hydrogen could become very important in the future. So countries like Australia, which is the third largest energy exporter in the world, we already transport a lot of energy in the form of fossil fuels to our neighbours. In the future, if we want to decarbonize that trade, we could be using hydrogen instead. When you look at the overall pipeline, the majority of capacity globally is actually here in Australia. And that's partly due to the significant resources we have here, but also to the land availability. The majority of the cost associated with producing hydrogen is the power requirement for that. And renewable energy requires obviously vast amounts of solar and wind, so you need the land to be able to produce that green hydrogen as well. As well as looking to transport the hydrogen across countries through pipelines, uh, the real opportunity and the opportunity for Australia is the seaborne export of hydrogen. So then capturing it in ships like we're doing with gas and then exporting it to countries that maybe don't have the resources or the land to produce their own green hydrogen. So Japan and South Korea are two countries that have already sort of flagged that they might be interested in buying renewable hydrogen from Australia at some point. And this is because they foresee the point where they will not be able to make enough renewable energy in their country to satisfy their needs. So then they would want to import renewable energy and Australia could be in a very good position to do this. Now, there's only one thing left to discuss, transparency and certification. If you buy a kilogram of hydrogen from someone, there is no way of knowing from looking at the hydrogen where it came from. It's a very simple molecule. It leaves no traces of where it's been and where it's come from. So in order to ensure the embedded carbon dioxide or the embedded emissions in your product, you need to trust the information that you are getting from the seller of that hydrogen. It's absolutely critical. Now, the complication with hydrogen is that there are so many blocks in the chain for making hydrogen, particularly if it's not renewable. You could, for example, think of making hydrogen from gas. You have the emissions that are associated with extracting the gas, the emissions associated with transport. If you have to, for example, ship it overseas, there's an international shipping stage which will result in emissions that need to be counted and all of these modules, if you like, of processing 
can be accounted for in different ways. So it actually becomes quite complicated to get certification schemes that work internationally. The EU, for example, they've set up a scheme and they take into account various parts of this supply chain and somebody else's scheme for certification might only count, for example, the emissions associated with processing the hydrogen and ignore everything else. There is also a very big complication in that currently emissions are counted in countries. So if we make the hydrogen in Australia, we could easily count the emissions that are happening in Australia. But when we put it on a ship and ship it off, who counts the emissions of that transport from Australia, for example, to the EU? Currently, nobody takes account of shipping emissions. So there's a lot of work to be done in the area of certification. Our guests on Future Tense today were Dr Fiona Beck from the Australian National University, Jero Ferrugio from Rystad Energy, Dr Jessica Allen from the University of Newcastle, Andy Brown from Progressive Energy, and the CSIRO's Dr Linda Stalker. Karen Savanovitz is the other half of the Future Tense team. I'm Anthony Fennell. Until next time, cheers. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.